Section 17 of Manners, Customs, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart. Manners, Customs, and Dress During the Middle Ages and During the Renaissance Period by Paul Lacroix. Section 17. Games and Pastimes games of the ancient greeks and romans games of the circus animal combats daring of king pepin the king's lions blind men's fights cockneys of paris champ de mar cour plenière and cour couronnée jugglers tumblers and minstrels rope dancers fireworks gymnastics cards and dice chess marbles and billiards la soule la pirouette etc small games for private society history of dancing ballet des ardents the occasographie art of dancing of toineau arbeau list of dances people of all countries and at all periods have been fond of public amusements and have indulged in games and pastimes with a view to make time pass agreeably these amusements have continually varied according to the character of each nation and according to the capricious changes of fashion since the learned antiquarian j mercius has devoted a large volume to describing the games of the ancient greeks de ludus graecorum and rabelais has collected a list of two hundred and twenty games which were in fashion at different times at the court of his gay master it will be easily understood that a description of all the games and pastimes which have ever been in use by different nations and particularly by the french would form an encyclopedia of some size we shall give a rapid sketch of the different kinds of games and pastimes which were most in fashion during the middle ages and to the end of the sixteenth century omitting however the religious festivals which belong to a different category the public festivals which will come under the chapter on ceremonials the tournaments and tilting matches and other sports of warriors which belong to chivalry and lastly the scenic and literary representations which specially belong to the history of the stage we shall therefore limit ourselves here to giving in a condensed form a few historical details of certain court amusements and a short description of the games of skill and of chance and also of dancing the romans especially during the times of the emperors had a passionate love for performances in the circus and amphitheatre as well as for chariot races horse races foot races combats of animals and feats of strength and agility the daily life of the roman people may be summed up as consisting of taking their food and enjoying games in the circus panem et circiensis a taste for similar amusements was common to the gauls as well as to the whole roman empire and were historians silent on the subject we need no further information than that which is to be gathered from the ruins of the numerous amphitheatres which are to be found at every centre of roman occupation the circus disappeared on the establishment of the christian religion for the bishops condemned it as a profane and sanguinary vestige of paganism and no doubt this led to the secession of combats between man and beast 
They continued, however, to pit wild or savage animals against one another, and to train dogs to fight with lions, tigers, bears, and bulls. Otherwise it would be difficult to explain the restoration by King Shilperic, A.D. 577, of the circuses and arenas at Paris and Soissons. The remains of one of these circuses was not long ago discovered in Paris, whilst they were engaged in laying the foundations for a new street on the west side of the hill of St. Genevieve, a short distance from the old palace of the Caesars, known by the name of the Thermes of Julian. Gregory of Tours states that Chilperic revived the ancient games of the circus, but that Gaul had ceased to be famous for good athletes and racehorses, although animal combats continued to take place for the amusement of the kings. One day King Pepin halted, with the principal officers of his army, at the Abbey of Ferrières, and witnessed a fight between a lion and a bull. The bull was of enormous size and extraordinary strength, but nevertheless the lion overcame him. Whereupon Pepin, who was surnamed the Short, turned to his officers, who used to joke him about his short stature, and said to them, Make the lion loose its hold of the bull, or kill him. No one dared to undertake so perilous a task, and some said aloud that a man who would measure his strength with a lion must be mad. Upon this, Pepin sprang into the arena sword in hand, and with two blows cut off the heads of the lion and the bull. "'What do you think of that?' he said to his astonished officers. "'Am I not fit to be your master? Size cannot compare with courage. Remember what little David did to the giant Goliath.'" Eight hundred years later, there were occasional animal combats at the court of Francis I., a fine lady, says Brantome, went to see the king's lions in company with a gentleman who much admired her. She suddenly let her glove drop, and it fell into the lion's den. "'I beg of you,' she said, in the calmest way to her admirer, "'to go amongst the lions and bring back my glove.' The gentleman made no remark, but, without even drawing his sword, went into the den and gave himself up silently to death to please the lady. The lions did not move, and he was able to leave their den without a scratch and return the lady her missing glove. "'Here is your glove, madam,' he coldly said to her, who evidently valued his life at so small a price. "'See if you can find anyone else who would do the same as I have done for you.' So saying, he left her, and never afterwards looked at or even spoke to her. It has been imagined that the kings of France only kept lions as living symbols of royalty. In 1333 Philip de Valois bought a barn in the Rue Foidmantel near the Chateau du Louvre, where he established a menagerie for his lions, bears, leopards, and other wild beasts. This royal menagerie still existed in the reigns of Charles VIII and Francis I. Charles V and his successors had an establishment of lions in the quadrangle of the Grand Hotel de St. Paul, on the very spot which was subsequently the site of the Rue de Léon St. Paul. These wild beasts were sometimes employed in the combats, and were pitted against bulls and dogs in the presence of the king and his court. 
It was after one of these combats that Charles the Ninth, excited by the sanguinary spectacle, wished to enter the arena alone in order to attack a lion which had torn some of his best dogs to pieces and it was only with great difficulty that the audacious sovereign was dissuaded from his foolish purpose henry the third had no disposition to imitate his brother's example for dreaming one night that his lions were devouring him he had them all killed the next day the love for hunting wild animals such as the wolf bear and boar see chapter on hunting from an early date took the place of the animal combats as far as the court and the nobles were concerned the people were therefore deprived of the spectacle of the combats which had had so much charm for them and as they could not resort to the alternative of the chase they treated themselves to a feeble imitation of the games of the circus in such amusements as setting dogs to worry old horses or donkeys etc bullfights nevertheless continued in the southern provinces of france as also in spain at village feasts not only did wrestling matches take place but also queer kinds of combats with sticks or birch boughs two men blindfolded each armed with a stick and holding in his hand a rope fastened to a stake entered the arena and went round and round trying to strike at a fat goose or a pig which was also let loose with them it can easily be imagined that the greater number of the blows fell like hail on one or the other of the principal actors in this blind combat amidst shouts of laughter from the spectators nothing amused our ancestors more than these blind encounters even kings took part at these burlesque representations at mid-lent annually they attended with their court at the quinze vents in paris in order to see blindfold persons armed from head to foot fighting with a lance or stick this amusement was quite sufficient to attract all paris in fourteen twenty five on the last day of august the inhabitants of the capital crowded their windows to witness the procession of four blind men clothed in full armor like knights going to a tournament and preceded by two men one playing the haute bois and the other bearing a banner on which a pig was painted these four champions on the next day attacked a pig which was to become the property of the one who killed it the lists were situated in the court of the hotel d'armagnac the present site of the palais royal a great crowd attended the encounter the blind men armed with all sorts of weapons belabored each other so furiously that the game would have ended fatally to one or more of them had they not been separated and made to divide the pig which they had all so well earned the people of the middle ages had an insatiable love of sight-seeing they came great distances from all parts to witness any amusing exhibition they would suffer any amount of privation or fatigue to indulge this feeling and gave themselves up to it so heartily that it became a solace to them in their greatest sorrows and they laughed with that hearty laugh which may be said to be one of their natural characteristics in all public processions in the open air the crowd or rather as we might say the cockneys of paris in their anxiety to see everything that was to be seen would frequently obstruct all the public avenues and so prevent the procession from passing along 
In consequence of this, the provosts of Paris, on these occasions, distributed hundreds of stout sticks amongst the sergeants, who used them freely on the shoulders of the most obstinate sightseers. See chapter on ceremonials. There was no religious procession, no parish fair, no municipal feast, no parade or review of troops, which did not bring together crowds of people, whose ears and eyes were wide open, if only to hear the sound of the trumpet, or to see a dog rush past with a frying-pan tied to his tail. This curiosity of the French was particularly exhibited when the kings of the first royal dynasty held their Champ de Mars the kings of the second dynasty their cour plenière, and the kings of the third dynasty their cour couronnée. In these assemblies, where the king gathered together all his principal vassals once or twice a year, to hold personal communication with them, and to strengthen his power by ensuring their feudal services, large quantities of food and fermented liquors were publicly distributed among the people. The populace were always most enthusiastic spectators of military displays, of court ceremonies, and, above all, of the various amusements which royalty provided for them at great cost in those days. And it was on these state occasions that jugglers, tumblers, and minstrels displayed their talents. The Champ de Mar was one of the principal fêtes of the year, and was held sometimes in the centre of some large town, sometimes in a royal domain, and sometimes in the open country. Bishop Gregory of Tours describes one which was given in his diocese during the reign of Chilperic at the Easter festivals, at which we may be sure that the games of the circus, re-established by Chilperic, excited the greatest interest. Charlemagne also held Champ de Mar, but called them Cour Royale, at which he appeared dressed in cloth of gold studded all over with pearls and precious stones under the third dynasty king robert celebrated court days with the same magnificence and the people were admitted to the palace during the royal banquet to witness the king sitting amongst his great officers of state the cour plenière which were always held at Christmas, Twelfth Day, Easter, and on the day of Pentecost, were not less brilliant during the reigns of Robert's successors. Louis the Ninth himself, notwithstanding his natural shyness and his taste for simplicity, was noted for the display he made on state occasions. In 1350, Philip de Valois wore his crown at the Cour Plenière, and from that time they were called Cour Couronnée. The kings of jugglers were the privileged performers, and their feats and other amusements, which continued on each occasion for several days, were provided for at the sovereign's sole expense. These kings of jugglers exercised a supreme authority over the art of jugglery and over all the members of this jovial fraternity. It must not be imagined that these jugglers merely recited snatches from tales and fables in rhyme. This was the least of their talents. The cleverest of them played all sorts of musical instruments, sang songs, and repeated by heart a multitude of stories after the example of their reputed forefather, King Borgabed, or Bedabi, who, according to these troubadours, was the king of Great Britain at the same time that Alexander the Great was king of Macedonia. The jugglers of a lower order especially excelled in tumbling and in tricks of legerdemain. 
they threw wonderful somersaults they leaped through hoops placed at certain distances from one another they played with knives slings baskets brass balls and earthenware plates and they walked on their hands with their feet in the air or with their heads turned downwards so as to look through their legs backwards these acrobatic feats were even practised by women According to a legend, the daughter of Herodias was a renowned acrobat, and on a bas-relief in the cathedral of Rouen we find this Jewish dancer turning somersaults before Herod, so as to fascinate him and thus obtain the decapitation of John the Baptist. The jugglers, adds Monsieur de la Beldolière in his clever work on the private life of the French, often led about bears monkeys and other animals which they taught to dance or to fight a manuscript in the national library represents a banquet and around the table so as to amuse the guests performances of animals are going on such as monkeys riding on horseback a bear feigning to be dead a goat playing the harp and dogs walking on their hind legs we find the same grotesque figures on sculptures on the capitals of churches on the illuminated margins of manuscripts of theology and on prayer-books which seems to indicate that jugglers were the associates of painters and illuminators even if they themselves were not the writers and illuminators of the manuscripts jugglery monsieur de la beldolière goes on to say at that time embraced poetry music dancing sleight of hand conjuring wrestling boxing and the training of animals its humblest practitioners were the mimics or grimacers in many coloured garments and brazen-faced mountebanks who provoked laughter at the expense of decency at first and down to the thirteenth century the profession of a juggler was a most lucrative one there was no public or private feast of any importance without the profession being represented their mimicry and acrobatic feats were less thought of than their long poems or lays of wars and adventures which they recited in doggerel rhyme to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument the doors of the chateaus were always open to them and they had a place assigned to them at all feasts they were the principal attraction at the cour pleniere and according to the testimony of one of their poets they frequently retired from business loaded with presents such as riding horses carriage horses jewels cloaks fur robes clothing of violet or scarlet cloth and above all with large sums of money they loved to recall with pride the heroic memory of one of their own calling the brave norman taillefer who before the battle of hastings advanced alone on horseback between the two armies about to commence the engagement and drew off the attention of the english by singing them the song of roland he then began juggling and taking his lance by the hilt he threw it into the air and caught it by the point as it fell then drawing his sword he spun it several times over his head and caught it in a similar way as it fell after these skilful exercises during which the enemy were gaping in mute astonishment he forced his charger through the english ranks and caused great havoc before he fell positively riddled with wounds notwithstanding this noble instance not to belie the old proverb jugglers were never received into the order of knighthood 
they were after a time as much abused as they had before been extolled their licentious lives reflected itself in their obscene language their pantomimes like their songs showed that they were the votaries of the lowest vices the lower orders laughed at their coarseness and were amused at their juggleries but the nobility were disgusted with them and they were absolutely excluded from the presence of ladies and girls in the chateaux and houses of the bourgeoisie we see in the tale of le jugleur that they acquired ill fame everywhere inasmuch as they were addicted to every sort of vice the clergy and saint bernard especially denounced them and held them up to public contempt saint bernard spoke thus of them in one of his sermons written in the middle of the twelfth century a man fond of jugglers will soon enough possess a wife whose name is poverty if it happens that the tricks of jugglers are forced upon your notice endeavour to avoid them and think of other things the tricks of jugglers never please god from this remark we may understand their fall as well as the disrepute in which they were held at the time and we are not surprised to find in an old edition of the memoire du sire de joinville this passage which is perhaps an interpolation from a contemporary document st louis drove from his kingdom all tumblers and players of sleight of hand through whom many evil habits and tastes had become engendered in the people a troubadour's story of this period shows that the jugglers wandered about the country with their trained animals nearly starved they were half naked and were often without anything on their heads without coats without shoes and always without money the lower orders welcomed them and continued to admire and idolize them for their clever tricks but the bourgeois class following the example of the nobility turned their backs upon them in thirteen forty five guillaume de gourmont provost of paris forbade their singing or relating obscene stories under penalty of fine and imprisonment having been associated together as a confraternity since thirteen thirty one they lived huddled together in one street of paris which took the name of rue des jugleurs it was at this period that the church and hospital of st julian were founded through the exertions of jacques Goeur, a native of pistoia and of huet le lorraine who were both jugglers the newly formed brotherhood at once undertook to subscribe to this good work and each member did so according to his means their aid to the cost of the two buildings was sixty livres and they were both erected in the rue Saint-Martin and placed under the protection of saint julian the martyr the chapel was consecrated on the last sunday in september thirteen thirty five and on the front of it there were three figures one representing a troubadour one a minstrel and one a juggler each with his various instruments the bad repute into which jugglers had fallen did not prevent the kings of france from attaching buffoons or fools as they were generally called to their households who were often more or less deformed dwarves and who to all intents and purposes were jugglers they were allowed to indulge in every sort of impertinence and waggery in order to excite the risibility of their masters these buffoons or fools were an institution at court until the time of louis the fourteenth and several such as cayette triboulet and brusquet 
are better known in history than many of the statesmen and soldiers who were their contemporaries at the end of the fourteenth century the brotherhood of jugglers divided itself into two classes the jugglers proper and the tumblers the former continued to recite serious or amusing poetry to sing love-songs to play comic interludes either singly or in concert in the streets or in the houses accompanying themselves or being accompanied by all sorts of musical instruments the tumblers on the other hand devoted themselves exclusively to feats of agility or of skill the exhibition of trained animals the making of comic grimaces and tight-rope dancing the art of rope dancing is very ancient it was patronized by the franks who looked upon it as a marvellous effort of human genius the most remarkable rope dancers of that time were of indian origin all performers in this art came originally from the east although they afterwards trained pupils in the countries through which they passed recruiting themselves chiefly from the mixed tribe of jugglers according to a document quoted by the learned foncemagne rope dancers appeared as early as thirteen twenty seven at the entertainments given at state banquets by the kings of france but long before that time they are mentioned in the poems of troubadours as the necessary auxiliaries of any feast given by the nobility or even by the monasteries from the fourteenth to the end of the sixteenth century they were never absent from any public ceremonial and it was at the state entries of kings and queens princes and princesses that they were especially called upon to display their talents one of the most extraordinary examples of the daring of these tumblers is to be found in the records of the entry of queen isabel of bavaria into paris in thirteen eighty five see chapter on ceremonials and indeed all the chronicles of the fifteenth century are full of anecdotes of their doings mathieu de cossy who wrote a history of the time of charles the seventh relates some very curious details respecting a show which took place at milan and which astonished the whole of europe the duke of milan ordered a rope to be stretched across his palace about one hundred and fifty feet from the ground and of equal length on to this a portuguese mounted walked straight along going backwards and forwards and dancing to the sound of the tambourine he also hung from the rope with his head downwards and went through all sorts of tricks the ladies who were looking on could not help hiding their eyes in their handkerchiefs from fear lest they should see him overbalance and fall and kill himself the chronicle of charles the twelfth jean d'arton tells us of a not less remarkable feat performed on the occasion of the obsequies of duke pierre de bourbon which were celebrated at moulins in the month of october fifteen o three in the presence of the king and his court amongst other performances was that of a german tight-rope dancer named george menustre a very young man who had a thick rope stretched across from the highest part of the tower of the castle of macon to the windows of the steeple of the church of the jacobites the height of this from the ground was twenty-five fathoms and the distance from the castle to the steeple some two hundred and fifty paces on two evenings in succession he walked along this rope and on the second occasion when he started from the tower of the castle his feat was witnessed by the king and upwards of thirty thousand persons 
he performed all sorts of graceful tricks such as dancing grotesque dances to music and hanging to the rope by his feet and by his teeth although so strange and marvellous these feats were nevertheless actually performed unless human sight had been deceived by magic a female dancer also performed in a novel way cutting capers throwing somersaults and performing graceful moorish and other remarkable and peculiar dances such was their manner of celebrating a funeral in the sixteenth century these dancers and tumblers became so numerous that they were to be met with everywhere in the provinces as well as in the towns many of them were bohemians or zingari they travelled in companies sometimes on foot sometimes on horseback and sometimes with some sort of conveyance containing the accessories of their craft and a travelling theatre but the people began to tire of these sorts of entertainments the more so since they were required to pay for them and they naturally preferred the public rejoicings which cost them nothing they were particularly fond of illuminations and fireworks which are of much later origin than the invention of gunpowder although the saracens at the time of the crusades used a greek fire for illuminations which considerably alarmed the crusaders when they first witnessed its effects regular fireworks appear to have been invented in italy where the pyrotechnic art has retained its superiority to this day and where the inhabitants are as enthusiastic as ever for this sort of amusement and consider it in fact inseparable from every religious private or public festival this italian invention was first introduced into the low countries by the spaniards where it found many admirers and it made its appearance in france with the italian artists who established themselves in that country in the reigns of charles the eighth louis the twelfth and francis the first fireworks could not fail to be attractive at the court of the valois to which catherine de medici had introduced the manners and customs of italy the french who up to that time had only been accustomed to the illuminations of st john's day and of the first sunday in lent received those fireworks with great enthusiasm and they soon became a regular part of the programme for public festivals end of section seventeen recording by donna stewart seattle washington